Um, let's remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. Today's text comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. And the word of the Lord says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. Jesus and his disciples in this moment in, in the Bible were in a region that had no fewer than 14 temples dedicated to the worship of different gods. There were Syrian gods and Greek gods and temples for Jewish worship and even a temple designed for the worship of a political god. You could come uh, to Caesarea Philippi and worship the Roman emperor, worship Caesar as a god. So the stage is set for this dramatic scene. Uh, Here's this homeless, penniless carpenter from a ghetto called Nazareth with a ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and traders. And the religious people there already hate him at this point in time, and they've begun a plot to kill him. So here in the middle of all this religious mess and all this spiritual confusion, this Galilean who is despised by worshipers of every stripe and color ask a question. And he asks a fireball of a question. Who do people say that I am? He's he's surrounded by markers of the most significant religious systems in the world, by images of ancient belief that had stood the test of time. And he asks people who they believe he is. And he expects one answer and one answer alone. The Son of God. Now, it's popular today to say that Jesus never said he was the Son of God. But in this moment, Jesus is provoking people to pronounce his divinity in a really politically incorrect way. It's like he went to lunch with a bunch of vegans and he pulled out ham sandwiches for everybody. He is taking a stand that is controversial and it is bound to make him very, very unpopular. He's drawing a line in the sand whether whether you stand with him or you stand against him. Right at this moment, there's a choice to be made. He's creating a scenario where there's no middle ground. Now, his own disciples struggled with this question. They responded to Jesus' question, Who do you say that I am? And they said, Well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Come back from the dead. And some people say that you're Elijah, a great prophet who had a lot of good things to say. He was a great teacher. And he told us that the Messiah was on the way. And some people say that you're Jeremiah and you come to restore the power of God to the people of Israel. And you'll pave the way for Israel to be great again. you're, You're Jeremiah, you're a great political prophet. Jesus hears all that they have to say and he asks this question... That will change history. 
He looks at his disciples and he says, You've told me who everybody else says that I am. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the word Christ in and of itself means the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would set Israel free, the forever King. So Jesus is establishing one of the core beliefs of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's offering clarity and distinct, profound truth right in the middle of a city that's filled with spiritual confusion. Now, I look at Caesarea Philippi, and I see a world a lot like the world we live in today. Today, there's lots of spirituality, and there's lots of religion, but there's not a lot of clarity. Today, there are a million religions that claim to be the truth, and even some people who say that every religion is true, and they say that there's many different truths. But one of the defining characteristics of truth is that truth is not subjective. Truth doesn't operate as truth according to what we feel. Truth is objective. It's truth whether we believe it or not. There's not many paths to God. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and he's saying there's only one path to God and that's me. There's even people today who say that they're Christians, but they also believe that Jesus never said uh, or never made any exclusive claims about salvation, that any religious system will lead you to God. But frankly, people who say these things, people who say Jesus never said he was the Son of God, Jesus never said he was the only way to heaven, he never said that. These are people who honestly don't know enough about the Bible to make claims like that. Or they've twisted and they've cherry-picked part parts of the Bible that are palatable to them, that agree with what they want to believe to construct their own religion. They, they're not Christians. They might call themselves Christians, but they're deists, like Thomas Jefferson. If you've ever been to Monticello uh, up in Virginia, to his home up in Virginia, they have Thomas Jefferson's Bible on display there. And there's also a pair of scissors next to the Bible that Thomas Jefferson used to cut all the lines out of the Bible that he didn't agree with, that weren't palatable to him, that didn't make him feel good. And it was a very healthy portion of the New Testament that he didn't agree with. Fundamentalists like to pick parts of the Bible that they like to create a religious system built on following the rules. Liberals like to pick the parts of the Bible they like to create a system where anything goes and everything is acceptable and no one has to feel any guilt and sin is a dirty word and no one's allowed to say it. So we live in this time very much like the time that Jesus lived in. We have this unparalleled spiritual confusion in our time. Now, today's sermon, if you look in your bulletin, is called Solus Christus. And that's Latin and it means Christ alone. And it comes from the time of the Reformation. And it's one of what we call the five solas. And if you look in your bulletin, there's an insert in there giving you a brief explanation of what these five solas are. There's Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to the God alone be the glory. 
It's this collection of ideas that grew out of the Reformation. And over the next several weeks in October, leading up to October 31st, we're going to be getting in-depth into these ideas. Uh, October 31st is Reformation Day. It's a day when we remember that Martin Luther went to the church at Wittenberg and he nailed up his 95 Thesis. He nailed up these statements about what the church was doing wrong in terms of its theology and its practice. This was not a popular stance for Martin Luther to take at the time. If you can imagine Miss Denise coming up to the church at Carleton Baptist and making a list of 95 things that she didn't like we were doing here and just nailing them up to the door. And we would all walk up and we would all look at it and we would say that Denise, she's crazy as a bat, just like she's always been. But, but it, would, it would be a very unpopular stance to take in your community of belief. Now, Here's the issue. The, the church at the time, during Martin Luther's time, was heavily divided over some theological uh, differences. The Catholic church, Martin Luther at the time was a Catholic priest. He was a professor, a teacher, and he had lived as a Catholic monk for a while. And during his time and today, the Catholic church holds to the idea, or held to the idea, that you need Jesus plus something else to be saved from your sins. You need Jesus, but you also need to do good works to be saved from your sins. You need Jesus, and you need to repeat certain prayers to be forgiven for your sins. You need Jesus, but you also need to be baptized to be saved. I have been, I worked in a hospital, and several times during my 18 years of working at Piedmont Athens Regional, I saw people who died in the hospital. And someone would baptize them after they died, thinking that that would earn their way into heaven. In Luther's time, the teaching was that you needed Jesus, but it was a bonus if you could find the bones of an ancient saint and touch those bones. It would get you into heaven quicker, especially if you had some cash and you were willing to pay for a little bit of extra forgiveness from Jesus. Uh, Brent Bird, I'm glad Brent's here today. He went on an incredible trip last year to Italy and he, and he got to see uh, the sola scanta, the steps that Jesus climbed to be judged by Pontius Pilate. Martin Luther saw these steps as well and he was deeply disturbed by what he saw because pilgrims would come and in hopes of getting their loved ones into heaven, they would pay to climb the steps on their knees as an act of, uh, uh, of, uh, of contrition, as a way to get forgiveness and earn forgiveness for their dead relatives. People were spending their life savings to climb these steps, and they would climb them over and over until their knees were bloody and raw just hoping to get grandma into heaven. The idea during Luther's time was that Jesus could save you, but you had to do a little extra to go with your faith to really be saved. So the idea was Jesus plus. Martin Luther came along and he actually read the scriptures and he rediscovered an ancient truth. When Jesus died on the cross, that was enough. 
There's nothing else we need to do to be saved. Jesus plus something else doesn't save us. It is Christ and Christ alone. So he started this movement that became known as the Protestant Reformation. And it's a movement that resulted in church traditions like Carlton Baptist. And we'll celebrate that in the weeks to come by remembering these core beliefs. And today we're talking about that belief, Christ alone, solus Christus. Now, this is a message that some of you might not agree with. And it might offend some of you. Because even church folks in a church the size of Carlton Baptist have confused ideas about what truth really is. It used to be that pretty much everyone you knew had a common moral code that for the most part was based on the Bible, Scripture alone. Certain things were right and certain things were wrong. There was a general consensus about what was sin and what wasn't sin. So there was kind of this stability and and this relative peace in the spiritual world in our country. Nothing like what we see today. Now it's 2019, and there's a million different ideas about what's right and what's wrong. And everybody disagrees with everyone else, but no one's allowed to disagree with anyone else. In our country, even people who say they're Christians can't decide on where they stand on any issue, whether it's abortion or pornography or adultery or human sexuality. We can't even decide which bathroom we're supposed to use in this country today. So we've got the government telling us what's right and what's wrong instead of the Bible. The culture tells us that we have to be inclusive. But the fact is Jesus made some very exclusive claims. And his followers made some really exclusive claims about him. So here's some exclusive claims about Jesus Christ that lead us to this notion of Christ alone. One, he's the only son of God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Then he is the only name by which men are saved. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. He is the only way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only sacrifice that pays the price for our sins. Hebrews 10:12 says, "But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God." These are utterly exclusive claims of the New Testament. These are not my opinions. This is what's in the Bible. Not one man, woman, child, president, politician, or keyboard activist has the right to water them down. You either accept what the Bible says or you reject what the Bible says. You either accept Jesus or reject Jesus. So the question is, who do you say that he is? Who do you say he is? Scripture says that he's the Son of God. He's the only name by which men are saved, the only way to heaven, 
the only mediator between God and man, the only sacrifice that pays the price for our sins. If you have a problem with any of these ideas, I promise you it's not me you have a problem with. It's the Bible you have a problem with. Christians used to be called people of the book in ancient times. And I would say today, if we aren't people of the book, if we don't trust in what Scripture says, we aren't Christians. And that's not popular to say. That's exclusive. But the fact is, we don't have any right to pretend we're followers of Jesus unless the Jesus we follow is the Jesus we find in the New Testament. Period. Some people treat picking a God like they treat picking a daggum jar of peanut butter at the grocery store. I like crunchy. I like smooth. I like Peter Pan. Choosy mothers choose Jif. We're flipping about it. And people's eternal souls hang in the balance. Truth is narrow. And it is exclusive. Two plus two will always equal four. Jesus is either who the New Testament says he is or the whole thing is a lie. Truth is sometimes intolerant. It's not popular today to be intolerant. But if you had heart disease... You wouldn't want a doctor that examined you and told you all your labs and told you why you were short of breath and why you were having chest pain and diagnosed you with heart disease and then turned around and says, oh, you know what, you just go on and eat all the biscuits and ice cream you want to eat. I mean, we're all going to die of something. You wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want somebody who's intolerant of heart disease. And put you on medications and a diet and an exercise program to help you to live a healthy life. Even if you didn't like changing your diet. Even if you didn't like changing your life. We accept intolerance for these temporary things for our mortal lives. So we have to accept intolerance for our eternal souls as well. So Jesus asked this question that required an exclusive answer. Who do you say that I am? And of all the disciples, only Peter voice the correct answer to Jesus' question. In Matthew 16, 16, he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to this day, there's still many opinions about who Jesus is. Some people think he's just a good man or a great teacher or just a great historical figure. But the Bible says that he is the Son of God, period. C.S. Lewis wrote about it in Mere Christianity. He wrote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, Lewis wrote. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come 
with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who do you say that Jesus is? Here's what we learn from Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 13 through 17. If you read in verse 17, Simon Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. What this is saying is Jesus defies all human description. Only God can reveal to you who Jesus is. Napoleon Bonaparte once said, I know men, and Jesus Christ is more than a man. Peter was so in awe of Jesus, so sure that he was the Messiah, he gave the best answer he could come up with. Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of God. There were no other words he could come up with to adequately describe Jesus. So Peter spoke the words that God put into his heart, that Jesus was the Son of God. I want to talk about this just a minute. And I want to show you, we're going to let Scripture speak for Scripture just a minute. And um, uh, Neil, do you have your Bible today? Will you do something for me? Will you look up John chapter 5? Um, uh, Nick, you might need to help Neil find that. But, um, um, but uh, if you look up John chapter 5 for me, and I'm, I'm going to get Neil to, to read a couple of things for us. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, um, but um, I'm going to get you to do this today. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 5. There's pews, there's pew Bibles out there, and there's some in the back if you want one. Turn to John chapter 5, and I want us to look at this together. Because in this chapter, uh, and we're going to start at verse 17. In this chapter, Jesus really drops the hammer on the Pharisees. First, uh, what the context here is, Jesus had healed a man who had been disabled for 38 years on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, scolded him for healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus didn't even debate them about their interpretation of what the law was about working on the Sabbath. It was against the law to do work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were saying, you healed a man on the Sabbath, that's work, you're a sinner. Jesus said in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. People during Jesus' time would have been shocked because Jesus called God his father. In verse 18, uh, will you read verse 18 for us there, Neil? John chapter 5. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Now all of them breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. So Jesus, Jesus is not, a, what, read that last part one more time, I'm sorry. It's, it's making himself equal to God. Making himself equal to God. So Jesus is not only breaking the rules that the Pharisees set, but he's saying that he is equal to God. Now he, is, he has made some people mad with this healing on the Sabbath. Now he is punching lights out. Uh, read, read, uh, read verse 19 for me, Neil. So here's Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of God. 
I have a unique relationship with the Father. I am able to see the Father. I'm able to see what God is doing. And that everything I do is exactly what God is doing. Uh, read, read verse 20, Neil. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So Jesus is saying that he and God have this unique father-son relationship. That God has a unique love for Jesus, that the Father shows Jesus everything that he is doing, and that through Jesus, he's going to do even greater works than healing this man on the Sabbath. Uh, read verse 21, Neil. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. Jesus is saying, I have the same power as God in heaven to raise people from the dead and give them life and I have the authority to give this life to whoever I choose to give it to. Uh, uh, read, read, um, uh, read verse 22. Whoa. God judges no one. He has given me that authority. Verse 23. So that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Jesus deserves the same honor as God in heaven. Uh, uh, read verse 24, Neil. Truly I tell you, Anybody that believes in Jesus believes what God is doing. And anybody that believes in Jesus will have eternal life and escape judgment. Uh, go, go ahead and, and read um, verse 26. Verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. The Father has life in himself. We talked about this several weeks back when we were talking about the attributes of God. God is self-existent. God was never created. We don't have to worry about the question, who created God? No one created God. God is self-existent. He does not need another God to make him God. God does not need a proper diet. He does not need good exercise. He does not need us to believe in him in order to be God. He is God. And Jesus is saying, I am self-existent too. This is an immutable attribute of God. It cannot transfer to human beings. We need somebody and some things to survive. God doesn't need that. And Jesus is saying, I don't need that either. I am like him. Uh, go ahead, uh, Neil, if you don't mind, and, and read, um, read verse 24 now. Read verse 24. Uh, no, I'm sorry. We already read that. Uh, read, read verses 27 to 29. So Jesus is using this term. Jesus is saying he's the son of man. 
in verse 27. And he's talking about some scripture from Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and, uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel refers to the Son of God as the Son of Man. And he's saying that someday I will resurrect from the dead all human beings who have ever lived, and I will judge them. Neil, I'm just going to ask you to read a couple more verses. Uh, John 5, 39. Skip down to verse 39. This is what we're doing right now, y'all. The Scriptures testify to who Jesus is. In verse 46, last one, Neil, I promise. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Jesus is saying, even your greatest prophet, the greatest prophet in the history of Israel, if you go back to Deuteronomy and you read about the moment that Moses died, it says in those last few verses of Deuteronomy that Moses was the greatest prophet that ever lived. And Jesus is saying thousands of years ago, Moses wrote about me. There is no way Anybody who is sane could read this Bible and say that Jesus never claimed to be anything except a good teacher. The fact is, the New Testament distinctly states over and over and over that Jesus is the Son of God sent to earth to die for our sins so that we can spend eternity in heaven in communion with his father. Jesus demands a personal response from every one of us. Jesus said to them in John 15:16, "Who do you say that I am?" You've got to make this decision for yourself. You've got to determine what your answer to that question is. You can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. He doesn't give you that luxury. If you really listen to what he says, you either need to believe that he is the preeminent son of God and fall on your face and worship him, or you need to get as far away from him as you think you possibly can. He demands either a hot or a cold response. Revelation 3, 15, and 16 says that he spews anything lukewarm out of his mouth. If, if you're in a middle-of-the-road person, he vomits you out of his mouth. An old preacher of mine used to say, there's nothing in the middle of the road but yellow lines and dead possums. You remember that, Daniel? It might be time for you today to stop standing in the middle of the road and stand for Jesus. There's a ton of spiritual lies in our world today. Jesus plus church attendance will save you. Jesus plus getting baptized will save you. Jesus plus doing good works will save you. Jesus 
plus affirming other religious systems will save you. Jesus plus voting for the right political party will make you a Christian. Jesus plus being American will get you in good with God. Jesus plus feeling a certain way about pop culture issues will make God love you more. But standing firm against all of this is solus Christus. Christ alone will save you. So here's the four implications of Solus Christus. John 19.30 makes it clear. Jesus spoke these words. He said, it is finished. Christ alone paid the price for our sins. These three words in Greek are actually one word. And it's a, it's a Greek word... Tatalestai. Archaeologists have found it on scraps of first century paper that appear to be receipts or bills of sale. When a purchase was completed, the seller wrote this word across the paper, meaning paid in full. Jesus paid the full price for our salvation, and he said that word. It is finished, it is paid in full. Because the work of salvation was complete, and by his death he had paid for my sins and for your sins. The second implication of Solus Christus is that Christ alone saves man from God's wrath. Galatians 2.16 says this, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Doing good works might get you lots of pats on the back and attaboys here on earth, and it might make you feel really good about yourself, but even our best efforts are like filthy rags in the presence of a perfect, holy God. God is just. And what that means is, is that sin must be punished. When Christ died on the cross, He bore the full weight of the wrath of God all the pain, all the sickness. When God looked at him, he saw the eternal sins of all mankind. And he punished him for everyone. Only the blood of Christ, not our good works, not our good deeds, only the blood of Christ will cleanse us from our sins. And then we have Christ alone gives us peace with God. Romans 5.10 says, We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. I was looking at a social media post that someone put up quite a while back. It was a long statement about how they had taken a long look in the mirror at themselves. And they knew that even though they had chosen a lifestyle that was contrary to the teaching of the Bible and the wishes of her parents, that God loved her. And he approved of the choices that she made. And she got that half right because God does love her. And he loves you and he loves me and all of us sinners in spite of our unworthiness. But he does not love sin. 
that separates us from Him. It creates a void between us and God. And it's only through the blood of Christ that that separation is erased. We have peace with God through Christ and Christ alone. And finally, Christ alone teaches us what love really is. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. Man searches high and low for all of his life for something or someone that will teach him what it means to love and to be loved. And we try all sorts of things. We love according to nationality and ethnicity and sexual identity and political party. But all of those loves are hollow in the end. But the love of God never fails and never gives up and never stops. John 15 says, Greater love has not a man than this, except that he lays down his life for his friends. I have called you Friends, Romans 5, 8 says, Even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were enemies of God, scarred and beaten up by our sins, Christ loved us enough to die for us. Galatians 2, 20 says that Jesus is the Son of God and He loved us and gave Himself for us. So the answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, is the central question of the Christian faith. Who do you say that He is? Who is Jesus? Is He the Republican Jesus who is against tax increases for the rich and opposed to illegal immigration and He's pro-NRA? Or is He the Democrat Jesus who is against wealth accumulation and wants universal income for everyone and wants everyone to be able to choose and is primarily concerned with climate change. Or maybe he's a televangelist Jesus who smiles a lot and promises that if you just partner with his ministry financially and order his latest book, you'll have your best life now. Or maybe he's the all-inclusive Jesus who agrees with every philosophy and lifestyle and welcomes everyone to heaven no matter what. Who agrees with everyone. Or how about Super Bowl Jesus? He's a favorite. He helps our favorite athletes score touchdowns and achieve the impossible and get million-dollar shoe contracts. Or gentle Jesus who was meek and mild with flowing hair and a nice soft glow behind his head and, and most definitely Caucasian and European. Or maybe peace and love Jesus who wants everybody to get along and he wears Birkenstocks and he drinks fair trade coffee and thinks that's what makes him a Christian. Or American Jesus who teaches us to work hard and reach our full potential and own a nice house and wear the best clothes. Our spiritual Jesus, he's really popular today. He loves God, but he hates religion. He doesn't trust pastors and he doesn't need to learn doctrine because that's old school. That's grandma's church. And he finds God in everything from microbrews to trap music. Millennial Jesus is a good one. He gets angry at all the same things that millennials get angry about. Oh, and boyfriend Jesus, that's a really good one. He just wraps me up in his arms and approves of me no matter what I do. And homeboy Jesus, oh, I love Jesus as my homeboy. They minimize the son of the living God to a t-shirt slogan. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a great teacher. 
He's not just a good man. He was the one they've been waiting for. He was 100% man. He had a mother and siblings and a family tree that he could trace back to King David and even farther. He was also 100% God. The one who healed the sick and made the lame walk and gave sight to the blind and had compassion on the ones beaten down by life. And he died on a cross and took away the sins of the world. Isaiah 53 said that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He lived a real life, and he died a real death, and he loved with such a furious love, not even the grave could separate him from the ones he came to save. Jesus is the Son of God. Colossians 2 says he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Who do you say that he is? I'm going to ask our musicians to come. This last song is by an English hymn writer named Stuart Townsend. And it's based on Ephesians chapter 3. It's a tremendous confession of how magnificent the love of Jesus is. If you want to know what love is... Look at Christ on the cross, dying for sinners like you and sinners like me. This song's called How Deep the Father's Love. How deep is the Father's love? It's deeper than even your worst sin. 
If you want to know who Jesus is, look at the cross. See how he loves. There's a moment in Scripture where a Roman centurion, a soldier, is standing watch at the cross. And there's an earthquake and an eclipse and the veil and the temple is torn. The dead rise from the graves and the soldiers are witness to all of this. And he looks at Jesus on the cross and he makes a statement and he says, Truly, this man is the Son of God. But I don't believe it was because of the earthquake or because of even seeing the dead raised that he said this. I believe that he said this because he saw Jesus. He saw his wounds. He saw the compassion that he showed the thief on the cross next to him. He saw the care he had for his mother, for John. And I believe when he saw Jesus on the cross, his thought was, only a God could love like this. Let's... Um, Let's stand and sing. Ephesians three fourteen through 19 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's sing together.